Well, this morning we are in week 15 of our series through the Gospel of Matthew. And as Matthew's Gospel is getting closer and closer to the cross, there are certain themes that are popping up. And in Matthew chapters 23 through 25, Jesus talks a lot about the end times. I know the end times is like a fascinating topic for most people. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you kind of find this idea interesting. There's so many movies and TV shows dedicated to what the end of the world might be like. And yet Jesus here is trying to help us understand what the end of time will be like, but also Jesus is trying to help us prepare ourselves so that when the end of time comes, we're ready for what's coming. And we're going to look at this passage in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. And Jesus says these words. When the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer Jesus, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Well, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers... You did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will then go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This passage in Matthew 25 begins with the phrase, When the Son of Man comes in his glory with all his angels, he will sit on his glorious throne. This is a clear reference to the return, the future return of Jesus Christ. And the Apostles' Creed affirms that when Jesus returns, he shall come to judge. And this passage that we read this morning, that we're going to look at this morning, it presents a vivid, specific, and memorable vision of what the final judgment will be like. And this morning we're going to talk about the final judgment. We're going to learn three things about the final judgment. We're going to learn that when it comes to the final judgment, there is surprising news. There's bad news and there's good news. Surprising news, bad news, good news. First, the surprising news 
about the final judgment. The main focus of this passage is that when Jesus returns, he will return as the universal judge over all people. It says in the text that all nations will be gathered. No one escapes this final judgment. All nations gathered in front of Jesus, the universal judge. And on that day, it says that he will separate people as a shepherd would separate sheep from the goats at the end of a day. And what we're learning here is that at the end of time, there's only one of two outcomes for all of us. We are a sheep on the right of Jesus, or we are a goat on the left of Jesus. The separation is very clear in this passage. There's sheep or there's goats. There's his right or there's his left. There's blessed or there's cursed. He's either for you on that day or he is against you. There's no middle ground. And this picture of a final judgment means that there's a final judge. And if there's a final judge, then there means that there is right and there is wrong. And then on that day, we will not be judged by our own standards. We'll not be judged by the standards of this world. We will be judged by God's standards. There's right and there's wrong. Now, I just want to recognize that this is a problem for many people. Many people actually object to this about Christianity and religion. They say, well, this is the problem with, with Christianity and religion. You say there's a right way to live and there's a wrong way to live, and who are you to say that? In fact, one of the objections might sound like this. It's wrong for you to do that. And to be honest, throughout history, this sort of claim has been misused at times by people to get power and control and influence over other people. However, to say it's wrong to say that there is right and wrong is a self-defeating statement. You're actually, in your own statement, acknowledging that certain things are wrong. You're telling people, hey, I don't like that you tell other people how you should live and what's right and wrong, so let me tell you what's right and wrong. There's no way around this. And then some people say, well, every truth claim is just a power play. People manipulate and use truth to gain power. And again, sometimes that happens. But if your statement that every truth is a power claim is true, then so is your truth claim. You're also making a power play. And then other people like to say, hey, you can't say that there's absolute truth. Truth is relative. There's no such thing as absolute truth. But that statement itself is a statement of absolute truth. Here's my point. Each of the objections to the idea of a final judge and a final justice is self-defeating. No matter how much we don't like the idea of judgment and a final judge, we can't completely get around it. We can't find our way around it. And the surprising news about judgment is this, that we actually need this to be true. We need it. If there's no final judgment, then we can't live together rightly, and we can't forgive each other. Let me explain. If there's no ultimate judge, if there's no ultimate judgment, then that means there's no absolute standard outside of ourselves. Earlier this week, my family, we were having dinner together. My wife, Erin, and I, we have three girls, 14, 12, and 9. And during dinner, one of our girls was like, let's play a game, and let's all describe each other using just one word. Just one word. It's kind of a dangerous game. I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily recommend you play this game with your spouse. Uh, but one word to describe me. And uh, so I went first, and I, and I looked at one of my daughters, and I said, you know, you're so empathetic. You have so much empathy. You feel other people's pain. And I think that's wonderful about you. Another one of my daughters, I said, you're conscientious. You just, you know when other people are hurting. You're, you're always just caring and thinking. And then one of my daughters is very determined. And then I said to my wife, you're selfless, right? Everybody heard that. It's on record now. I said to my wife, she's, she's selfless. And then it came time for my turn. And my daughters were really struggling. Like, ah, one word to describe dad. 
And my 12-year-old was like, I don't know what the word is, but you're like someone who's very competitive, but always loses. <laughs> I was like, I think that's just a loser. I think you just described a, a loser. <laughs> painful dinner with the family. She's at least half right. I'm very competitive. And if you're competitive like me, then like me, you have a complicated relationship with rules. You hate them and you love them. You hate them because they mean that there's limits to what you can do to win, right? You can't cheat. You can't do anything because there's rules. And so you kind of hate rules, but you also love rules because if you play a game with no rules or where everybody gets to make up their own rules as they go. It's the wild, wild west of game night, right? You never know who actually won. And as a competitive person, the worst thing in the world is finishing a game and not knowing who actually won. And so what I'm saying here is that if you and I need rules or a standard of right and wrong just so we can play a board game together, how much more do we need a standard of right or wrong so that we can live together? that we can do life together. If there's no absolute standard, if there's no universal right or wrong outside of us, then how do we explain the fact that before, when children are so little, they already are yelling about things not being fair? Parents, are you sick of hearing about things not being fair? No one teaches kids about this. They just inherently and intuitively have written on their beings that there is a sense of justice and rightness and wrongness. How do we explain that? Where does that come from if there's not a God who has a standard of right or wrong? How can anyone be held responsible for anything they do? And what is the basis for all of our moral outrage if there is no standard outside of ourselves? How can we confidently and consistently claim that anything is right or wrong if there's not a standard outside? If, see, if you and I create and maintain the standard, that's bad news. Listen, if we're playing a game and I get to create the rules as we go, you're going to lose every single time. I promise you, because I will make those rules work for me. I'll say, hey, I pass go. I get to collect $20,000. You'll be like, no, 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 it's $200. It's $200. I played Monopoly. No, I'm creating the rules as I go. See, if, if we get to create the standard of right, right and wrong as, as, a human, as humans, then we're always going to change it and bend it and manipulate it so that it justifies our behavior and advances our causes. We actually can't do life together in any sort of a healthy way if there is not a standard of right or wrong that we're not creating, defining, and giving to ourselves. So if there's no final judge, there's no absolute standard, that's a problem for you and me. But also, if there's no final judge, there's no final justice. And that's also a big problem for you and me. One of the ways that sports has changed the most in the last 20 years is how technology has introduced this thing called instant replay. And instant replay is most people are okay with it. You know, the idea of instant replay is that now we have video footage and the technology to go back and review calls to make sure that they actually got the call right. 
And so in football, the coaches have a limited amount of challenges where they can throw this red flag out onto the field and say, I think the referee made a bad call. I want to challenge that call. And then they go back, and then these referees who are not necessarily on the field, but they're in a studio somewhere, they watch the play back. And then if it's a good call, they say the call is good. And if it's a bad call, they can overturn it. And the idea of instant replay is that there's now a new level of justice above the justice on the field. And it's actually, if you're a sports fan, it's changed the way you watch games. Because before, when there was a bad call, you just gave up hope. You're like, that's it. It's a bad call. And you just kind of get angry and despair. You start throwing stuff around the room. Maybe that's just me. You get, you get, super, you get super frustrated. But now, if there's a bad call in the game that I'm watching, I, I can delay my outrage just long enough to go, are they going to challenge this? Are they going to review this? Is there a higher level of justice that they're going to appeal to? And if there's no final judge... There's no final justice, which means this, and this is scary. If there's no final justice at the end of time, then that means that every score has to be settled by you and me. You have to right every wrong. You have to be a vigilante. You have to be the Batman who goes and, you know, does his own thing in the darkness to defeat evil. You have to be, the, in the Jason Bourne films, the person who goes and fights to make... you got to take it all into your own hands. But if there is a final judge, and if there is final justice, then we actually become free not just to live together, as I said earlier, but to forgive each other. Now, in Romans chapter 12, Paul says it this way. I thought this was very interesting and helpful. He says, Beloved, he's writing to Christians... Never avenge yourselves. Don't go out for vengeance, but leave it to the wrath of God. Paul doesn't say, hey, don't avenge yourself. Leave it to the kindness of God. Leave it to the goodness of God. Paul is appealing to God as a judge who someday will make all things that were wrong right and everything will be dealt with. Paul is teaching us something amazing. Yes, we forgive each other because we've been forgiven by the grace of God. That's a powerful motivation too. But Paul's not just talking about forgiveness here. He's talking about vengeance. When someone has really harmed you and you think, I've got to get them back for what they've done to me. Paul is saying, you don't have to get them back. You know why? Because there's a wrathful God. I know that's not normally a comforting phrase, but there is a wrathful God who sees all, knows all, will judge all, there's instant replay. <laughs> you can trust him with it. You can leave it in him. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Do not overcome evil, or do not be, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we can let go. We can forgive. We can move on. Because we don't have to make every wrong right because there's a final judge and a final judgment. So, conclusion of this first point, the surprising news about judgment is that we need it. We need it if we're going to live together. If there's no standard of right or wrong, how do we live together as a people? But we also need to forgive each other because if there's not a final judge, then we have to be the final judge. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, if there is no final judge, then what hope is there for this world? But if there is a final judge, what hope is there for you? What hope is there for me? And this brings us to the bad news. So let's talk about the bad news about judgment. I think when I read this passage, the bad news probably jumped out at you because there's words in there like eternal punishment. That's not good news. That's bad news. Cursed, eternal fire, depart from me. And this word hell. I know you didn't drive to church this morning to hear about hell, but here we are. I want to share with you five things that this passage teaches us about hell. Five things that we can be certain about hell. And the first thing is this. Hell is, is real. Hell is real. 
This is not a parable. This is not symbolism. This is prophecy. Now, Jesus uses a parable inside of his prophecy. When Jesus talks about separating the sheep from the goats, that's a parable. But when Jesus says the Son of Man will come in his glory with all of his angels and sit on his glorious throne, that's not a parable. That's a prophecy. That's a statement of fact. And so what Jesus is teaching us here in Matthew 25, this is not a story full of symbolism for us to interpret and to allegorize. This is a reality that hell is real. Whatever hell is going to be like, and there's a lot of conversation and debate about that, it's real. It's not made up. The second thing we can know for certain about hell is this, that hell is a place or a state of being that has not been prepared for you and for me. Did you notice that when we read this? Jesus says to the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom which was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Heaven was prepared for us. But then when he speaks to the goats, he says something different. He says, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Not prepared for you. Hell was not prepared for you. Hell is not God's will for you, but heaven is. Hell was prepared for the devil and for his angels, not for you and for me. We know that about hell. The third thing we know about hell is this, that hell will be torment for the devil. Sometimes people think, well, in hell, the devil's going to have a great time. He's going to be partying, and he's going to be tormenting the souls of people who are there. That's not what's taught here. He will not be tormenting the goats, so to speak. He will be tormented alongside of them. This is going to be a place of torment for the devil and his angels or his demons. The fourth thing that we know about hell is this, and this is probably one of the more sobering things. Hell will be eternal punishment. Eternal punishment. Um, there are some people who believe in universalism. Universalism says, no, um, God is love. He wants to save everyone. It's his desire that none should perish. So at the end of time, he's just going to save everyone. He's, gonna, he's just going to welcome everybody in. But I want you to know in this story, Jesus doesn't stand before the sheep and the goats and go, eh, let's make the goats into sheep. He separates them. So universalism is not taught in this passage, or do I believe it's taught in Scripture? Then there's another belief called eternal oblivion or Christian nihilism, which basically says there's hell is really, you'll just, if you don't love Jesus and serve Jesus, if you aren't uh, saved by God, you'll just cease to exist. You just disappear. But there's words in here like eternal fire and eternal punishment. God doesn't, Jesus doesn't say sheep, goats, goats disappear, sheep enter in, Right? So these are not options afforded to us from this text or, I believe, from Scripture. Hell will be eternal punishment. Now, what will the nature of the punishment be? I don't know. I know Jesus uses words like fire and darkness, but I want you to know that Jesus is not giving us probably a literal explanation of hell. He's using things that we're familiar with to describe something that's actually worse. So I'm, one of my... One of my one of the pastors I listen to sometime says, well, people get really nervous about hell, and they ask me, do you think that hell will be literally fire and will be burning forever and ever and ever? And he goes, no, I, I don't think it's literal fire. And they go, oh, okay, good. And then he says, I think it's something much worse. <laughs> so literal, whether it's literal or whether it's representing something much worse, whatever it is, it is eternal punishment, and it's the sort of punishment that we can only compare in this world to maybe eternal fire and eternal darkness. And it could very well be that, but it may be something much worse. And then the fifth thing that we know about hell is this, and this is the worst part of hell. Hell will be separation from God. Jesus says, depart from me. 
no matter how far you've ever fallen in your life, no matter what rock bottom has meant to you, you've never lived in a world separate from the presence of God. You and I cannot comprehend. That's what sort of happened to Jesus upon the cross, right? You and I have been saved from that by common grace for our entire lives. We can't even begin to think what it would be like to be separated from it for eternity from God. So listen, hell is bad news, but the emphasis of this teaching actually is not hell. And the bad news in this passage, or the bad news about judgment, is not that hell is waiting. The bad news in this passage is that the sort of, listen to this, the goodness that God is looking for in us is a goodness that we are not even aware of. Now let me explain. When Jesus says to the wicked people, when I was hungry, when I was thirsty, when I was naked, when I was sick, when I was, and all those things represent different things, right? Hungry and thirsty, it's extreme need. Nakedness, it's exposure to danger and, and not being provided for. Sickness is speaking of, of course, our physical, our physical bodies. Being a stranger is an outsider. Those in prison, whether you're innocent or whether you're guilty, those who have been uh, caught in their sin and in their struggle, it represents all of these people. And, I, and I, there's some debate about whether this is speaking of um, literally the hungriest, sickest, thirstiest, neediest people in the world, or if it's speaking of people that Jesus sent out in his name, there's some debate. I don't want to dive into it. I think it's probably a little bit of both, that we need to have a heart for people who are the least of these, whether they are believers or not. But what Jesus is claiming here is, you don't love me. Listen to this. Some of us, this is challenging. You do not love me any more than you love the person you love least. Jesus is challenging us with that thought. You can say you love me all you want, but if you hate your brother, you don't know me. You don't love me. So what is, this, this, is the, <laughs> this is what I felt was the bad news all week. Oh, no. Oh, no. I don't love Jesus more than the person that I love least? What do I do with that? And then as I leaned into the passage more, it got worse because the people who were doing the right things were just as unaware that they were doing it for Jesus as the people who weren't doing the right things. Did you notice that? They had the identical response. When did we, when did we not serve you? And then the sheep were saying, when did we serve you? What is the point of all of that? The point is this. The goodness that God is after is a goodness that you and I are not aware of. It's a goodness that we're not sort of tooting our own horn and blowing the trumpet and drawing attention to ourselves. And the problem is, is that when you and I get this right, when we do feed the hungry and the thirsty and we visit the sick and the imprisoned and the naked and the strangers, when we get it right, we are so aware that we're getting it right. Aren't we? Just me? I'm so aware when I'm doing things right. I'm like, oh, wow, God, I hope you're paying attention today. I hope you. Hope, hope you got your journal out because I just fed some hungry and yes, it was me, but still, I was hungry. I fed some, no. I, I, I reached out to people, right? The goodness that we do often, we're painfully aware of our own goodness, but Jesus is saying here that, that truly loving people is never about you. And it's never done with the mindset of this will get me noticed. This will get me in. This will save me. Here's what I've learned in my own life. When I'm aware of my own goodness, I need other, it's never enough just for me to be aware. I need you to be aware. When I'm aware of my own goodness, I want everyone else to be aware of my own goodness. And Jesus is saying here, this sheep, 
They do all these things and they never think they're, they're never telling themselves, I'm doing it for Jesus. I'm suffering for Jesus. I'm doing this because this is what Jesus wants me. They're not, they're just doing it because the goodness of Jesus is at work in them in such a way that they're just grateful that God can even use them. To them, it's an honor that God would even allow them to be about his work of feeding the hungry and bringing drinks to the thirsty and clothing the naked and visiting the stranger and the sick and those in prison. And so the bad news is this, is that there's a problem in our own hearts that even when we're good, we're often painfully aware of our goodness. And Jesus is looking for a goodness that's not motivated by what I get out of it, but it has a deeper motivation. That's the bad news about judgment. So let's finish with the good news about judgment. I'm going to ask Pastor Jared to join me up here. There's two phrases in this passage that have helped me all week not to be kind of despairing as I've been studying this, because this is a hard passage. I get it. This is hard. You're visiting. You're like, wow, this dude's talking about hell (laughs) and judgment, and that's just where this passage leads us. But there's two things that help me, and I think they'll help you. The first is the phrase, inherit the kingdom, inherit the kingdom. Verse 34 says, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What are two things we know about inheritance? The first thing is this, you don't earn your inheritance. You don't work for your inheritance. You don't manipulate. An inheritance is a gift. It's a gift that is yours because of what someone else did. If you're going to get an inheritance from your mom or your dad or your grandma or your grandpa when they pass on, it's not because of anything you've done. It's because they spent their life working and saving money and setting things aside. So when an inheritance comes to you, you never pat yourself on the back and go, wow, look at me. You just realize, wow, what a gift. There's someone who did something in my place. And because they did it, I have the gift of the kingdom. And inheritance also speaks to the idea of family. Inheritances are almost always passed down through family. So here's what it means. When, when, when Jesus says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, that should flood your soul with so much joy and hope. From the foundation of the world, Jesus has been doing something so that I, the person who doesn't get it right, can inherit his kingdom. The kingdom will not be given as a reward for good works, but because of a saving relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So don't leave today thinking after this message, oh, okay, I know what I need to do. I've got to find hungry people, thirsty people, naked people, strangers in prison. Definitely don't go looking for naked people. Uh, but I've got to find all of these people, and then I've got to serve them. And then as I'm serving them, that's not even enough anymore. Pastor David says it's not enough just to serve them. I've got to serve them that I don't even realize I'm serving them. That would be a terrible burden on you. But instead, leave this way thanking God that Jesus has brought you into his family and that he's given you an inheritance. You can inherit the gift of heaven. And on that day, when you stand before Jesus at the final judgment, Jesus is not going to say, what have you done to to earn and win the kingdom? He's going to say, hey, you inherit the kingdom. And that truth and that truth alone can actually send you out into this world to love and serve the least. Now, How did Jesus do this for us? How did he secure the kingdom for us? And I want to finish with this. The first phrase I love in this passage is inherit the kingdom. But the second phrase is these two words, I was. When they said, when did we see you this way? Jesus says, I was hungry. I was thirsty. 
I was naked. I was a stranger. I was sick. I was in prison. One of the commentaries said this way, the language I was hungry and I was a stranger is almost an incomprehensible picture that the cosmic Lord of creation became hungry, naked, and sick. It's, it's as incomprehensible as the incarnation, that God would be Emmanuel, God with us. It's as incomprehensible as the crucifixion, that the living God died and was without life. And here's how Jesus inherited the kingdom for us because he's able to say, not just symbolically I was all these things, but literally, actually, factually, Jesus became all of these things because he became one of us to save all of us. And so the bread of life, Jesus, became hungry. He experienced hunger. The living water on the cross cried out, I thirst. The eternal one who's been covered in glory for all of eternity was stripped to nakedness and nailed to a cross. The ultimate insider became a stranger amongst his own people. The healing bomb of Gilead became sick, and the truly innocent perfect one was arrested, convicted, and executed as the lowest criminal. The good news about the final judgment is that we have a judge who left his bench to come and take the seat of the defendant. And not just take our seat, but take our punishment. That's the good news of the judgment. And that's why in Romans 3.26, Paul can write with confidence, Jesus was both the just judge and the justifier. He's just and he justifies you and me, which means he keeps all the rules for us so that all of his righteousness can be given to us, those who have faith in Jesus. The surprising news about the judgment, we need it. We can't get through life without a final judge. We really can't. We all live this way. We just maybe don't realize it. The bad news about the final judgment is that there's a goodness we need that we can't give to ourselves and we struggle with. But the good news about the judgment is that there's a judge and he left his bench. He came to us to rescue us and to save us. Let's pray together this morning.